Today on Craving Answers, Craving God, we're going to talk about baptism. It is a divisive topic, to be sure, in that Christian denominations differ on what it is. Peter says to his listeners in Acts 2, repent and be baptized. So I guess we should be doing it. What is baptism? What does it accomplish? Who qualifies as a candidate for baptism? What did Peter mean when he said in his first letter, baptism now saves you? This is the task we'll take up today on this episode of Craving Answers, Craving God. I'm Chuck Rathert with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. So, Aaron, is the topic of baptism controversial? Yeah, within Christian churches, it's really controversial. Uh, within Protestant churches, it's right up there with uh, um, d- disagreements about what communion means and what's happening at communion. Uh, disagreements about uh, predestination and free will. Baptism ranks right up there with stuff Protestants like to argue about. So does that mean we're getting off on a kind of a sad note here? Wouldn't it be nice if we could talk about a Christian doctrine and we could speak of it in a kind of a universal way where everybody is more or less on the same page instead of something that is probably going to divide the listeners who are tuned to us today? I, that would be boring, probably. Yeah, you know, well, that's if we true. Get together and talk about something that everybody already knows and agrees on. So this is maybe more engaging. I also think, too, um, when you talk about topics like this and communion and, and a predestination and free will, just to mention the ones I just talked about, it, it, they're actually portals into getting getting into a deeper study of God's Word so that even if we have a disagreement with somebody and we walk away uh, not being on the same page, I think the ancillary benefits of diving into God's Word and exploring it um, have their own set of um, side effect benefits, so to speak. When I was a boy, when I was young, at least the feeling was for me that um, baptism may have been done differently in different denominations, but everybody did it in one way or another, and it was essential. It was very important. Two generations later, in what we sometimes refer to as post-Christian America, maybe a conversation about baptism doesn't even have an anchor anymore. We, right. we can't assume that everybody knows well, and we know what they're going to talk about. We even know the things that that are controversial. We can't even assume that anymore. Right. So how much more difficult does that make our conversation today? Um, I don't know if it makes it more difficult. I hadn't thought about that question. Um, I don't think it makes it more difficult necessarily. I think the difficulty is people just don't understand. And so that makes a conversation like this more fun than difficult. Uh, but you're right. Uh, people um, have e- are either not getting baptized. Uh, I frequently will have uh, parents, and we'll, we'll get into this in a little bit. For those of you who aren't familiar with um, the church that I pastor, we baptize infants. I'll have parents come and ask me to baptize their uh, child with really no sort of connection to the church and no desire to have any sort of connection to the church. But they have this sense that you know this is a very very important rite of passage. Uh, this is kind of like kindergarten graduation. You know, you got to have your kid baptized, but really, no idea what it means. It's just kind of the thing their families have always done, and that's, those are good teaching moments and uh, a good opportunity to call people to faithfulness to Jesus. 
So is baptism a Christian ceremony where something divine happens, something powerful happens, or is it pretty much merely symbolic? Well, so I, I, I side with the first one. I, baptism, something is happening in baptism. And I grew up in a church where baptism was symbolic. It, it, nothing was going on. It was a symbol of um, um, having your sins washed away. It was a symbol of union with Christ. But I think that the Bible insists that baptism is something that God is doing. Baptism isn't something that we do you know, to commemorate or to think about an event. Uh, baptism is something that God does to us. This is one of the meanings you know, in, the, in the Great Commission when Jesus says, you know, go into all the world and preach the gospel, you know, everywhere, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One of the things he means by in the name of is the same thing that we mean when we say, uh, open up in the name of the law. Um, you know, if a, if a corrections officer says that, what what he or she is saying is, I'm not here representing myself. I'm not telling you I'm a strong, important person. You better open this door. They're saying, I'm actually here representing something bigger than me. And um, when a pastor uh, baptizes a, a person and baptizes them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one of the things that the pastor is saying is that this isn't me doing this. Yeah, yeah. on the surface, it's the cop knocking on the door. You know, On the surface, it's, it's me standing there uh, baptizing. But actually, there's a... a uh, a greater, more important force, power, person behind me who's actually doing this. So I, I think the Bible, by the way, too, the Bible never, ever talks about baptism in terms of, you know, the first step of obedience. For, for those of you who, like me, uh, grew up Baptist, you'll recognize that that phraseology. Baptism in the Baptist tradition was the first step of obedience after becoming a Christian. The Bible never talks about it as something that we do. It's always something that's done to us. All right, so let's talk about the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Jesus commands, quote, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So that pretty much settles the question whether or not to do it, but it doesn't seem to settle the question of how to do it. How do we deal with that? You're talking about like the, the mode of baptism, um, immersion or sprinkling or... I guess. Where do you want to go with that? I, well, I, I guess there are many different forms of uh, Christian baptism. Right. Yeah. And they differ in, in serious ways. And it would be nice. I mean, if, if a person said to me, ah... The Bible doesn't teach that we should baptize. I would say, let's go to Matthew 28, right, yeah, and we yeah. would settle that argument right there, I, I think would so. think. But I can't, I, I don't feel like I can go to some place in the New Testament and say, here's how you do it, right, right here. Right, yeah. So it has to be inferred, or I, I don't know. Yeah, what, yeah. But how do we do that? So, so first of all, side point, uh, there actually are uh, Christians who say you shouldn't baptize. It's an interesting uh, footnote here. Um, I'm, I'm familiar with, I, I knew some people when I was in high school who belonged to a group of Bible churches that uh, ultra-dispensationalist, you don't need to know what that means, go uh, look it up on Wikipedia, who said that baptism was for the Book of Acts, the New Testament age, no longer relevant for today. They are massively in the minority throughout Christian history and in the Christian church today. I totally agree with you. It's hard to read the Bible, the New Testament, and come away with the notion that baptism is not something that we should be doing. 
as far as like, what does the Bible teach about how to baptize? The Bible is um, it's, it's largely silent on that matter, um, and it can afford to be because they actually saw the apostles baptizing people, so they knew what it was like. You know, they didn't need somebody to say, "Here's here's how to do it." They could just go watch it happen. Um, a lot of people, a lot of Baptists that I grew up with would appeal to the word in Greek, uh, baptizo, and it's uh, cognates as, well, that, they would say that means immersion. It always means immersion. And so baptism always should be by completely immersing the person being baptized in water. But unfortunately, uh, the Bible d- doesn't always talk about you know water purification rites in that way. So there's a couple of great texts I want to point out. Uh, one is uh, two in the Old Testament. One is from the Isaiah 52, 53 text about the suffering servant of God and how uh, the one who is uh, wounded for our transgressions and bears our iniquities is going to take away the sins of the world. And in the course of that uh, conversation, Isaiah says, so shall he sprinkle many nations, using the word sprinkle. Ezekiel 36 is another great text. Um this is talking about this is almost a new covenant text talking about God pouring out his spirit on his people someday giving them a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone and in the course of that he says then I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean now these verses are some of many texts in the old testament that form the background of the new testament's view on baptism and they use the word sprinkle um can baptism mean immersion? Yes, of course it can, uh, but it doesn't always mean immersion. Here's a couple of examples uh, in the Gospels. In Mark 7, 4, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees, um, their, their desire, their, their, their uh, passion for washing hands before eating, and he uses the word baptized to describe that. Well, I don't think he means they're immersing their hands. He means that they're washing their hands. They're pouring water over their hands. Another example, this is very similar. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is eating a meal, and there's a Pharisee who's eating with him who is astonished that, uh, this is in Luke eleven thirty eight that Jesus did not wash before dinner. And the word used there is baptize, that he didn't baptize before dinner. That does not mean that he's not surprised that Jesus didn't you know strip down and completely dunk himself in water before dinner. He's surprised that Jesus didn't wash his hands. Well, there's a case where baptism is used in a way that's not immersed. There's, um, uh, in the ancient world, the word baptized could be used for ships floating on water, which uh, they're in contact with water, certainly, but they're not immersed. That's a bad situation for a ship to be immersed. So the word baptized doesn't always mean immersion. Although I, you know, I, I was baptized by immersion as a Baptist, and um, I, it's, there's something beautiful about that symbolism of being completely buried into Jesus Christ, into his death. It's not necessary, though. It's, it's, it's not required. But if somebody in my church came and said, hey, I really, really i am convic- convicted by this, and I just think that the imagery of uh, immersion really comports well with union of Christ and how baptism connects with that, I would say, yeah, for sure, let's figure out a way to immerse you. But it's not required because the Bible doesn't require it. So let's talk about that referenced uh, in 1 Peter 3, baptism now saves you. Um, does baptism literally save? So yeah, f- so First Peter three twenty one right says baptism saves you, and so I mean the first as as a um, as a Bible believing Christian, my first answer has to be yes, 
Yes. Um, baptism saves you. Now, the qu- question that a lot of contemporary Christians are going to have is, well, how is that possible? Like that smells like, especially Protestant Christians are going to say, that smells like a work to me. You mean like just by pouring water on somebody and saying some words, that person can be saved? And I would say, um, yes, depending upon what you mean. Now, the, the text doesn't say water saves you. It says baptism saves you. It's not that the water is doing some powerful thing. It's uh, so Luther says in the in the small catechism, you know, in answer to the question, "How can water do such great things?" Like, well, that's the question that comes up. Like, it's kind of weird for you guys to think that water can do this. Well, Luther says it's certainly not just water, but it's the Word of God in and with the water that does these things. And so when we talk about baptism, we have to say two things. First of all, there's water involved. And second of all, it's combined with God's word. That's baptism. And it's super clear in scripture that the word of God has the power to save. The word of God has the power to save. Romans 10 uh, says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so the word of God can create faith. The word of God actually is the only thing that can create faith. And what Luther is saying in the catechism there, and what the the Bible teaches, I believe, is that baptism isn't just water, but it's the Word of God in liquid form. It's the Word of God in and with the water. Ephesians 5, Paul Paul talks about this. He says that um, he's talking, he's actually talking about marriage, but he's talking about Christ's love for his church. And he says that he sanctified her, washing her with the water of the Word. That's a clear reference to what Luther's talking about, and clear reference to Christian baptism. I, you know, I don't know of anybody. There's hardly any Christians that I know who would say, when the Word of God is read or studied or preached and heard, that the Holy Spirit doesn't use that to save people and sanctify Christians to make Christians more holy. I, almost all Christians I know confess that. Well, this is just an easy step over here in 1 Peter 3.21 to say, okay, well, so the word of the baptism is that same word of God, but it's in liquid form. Now, so another way to look at it is this. If the word of God is what brings us to confess and believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, that's what baptism does. Baptism is the word of God in liquid form applied to us physically that brings us to believe that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. In fact, that's the angle that 1 Peter 3.21 takes, right? Baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the baptism is connecting us to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Very, very similar to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, that we have been connected, we have been united to the death and resurrection of Jesus by baptism. So what Paul says there, Peter is saying here, baptism, because it's the word of God in liquid form, has the power to bring us to faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. About a month ago, you baptized our newest grandchild here at St. James. Yeah. At the tender age of four weeks. Would it be correct to say that when her parents brought her to church that morning, she was an unsaved person, and when she... They took her home that day. She was then a saved person. Is that correct? Um, I know. So th- this will be controversial within my own circles. Um, I think that there's a, a sense in which to say, in which we can say, 
Yes, baptism, because it is the sign and seal of faith, is necessary. Uh, there are uh, there are you know desert island examples. You know that's always the you talk to anybody about um, any Christian about the Bible, and they're always be like, well, "What if you're on a desert island and there's no church, or what if you're on a desert island and there's no no nobody to baptize you? Like, what, what do you do then?" Of course, those desert island scenarios are few and far between, and hardly are, are ever germane to the uh, to people's real lives. But there are those scenarios: the thief on the cross, for instance, um, not baptized, but uh, a believer in Jesus, and was that day with Jesus in paradise. So there's a, a really good sense in which we say yes. There's something about baptism that moves us from darkness to light, that moves us uh, from death to life. I would say, though, that the Word of God is bigger than just water. The Word of God also comes to us in bread and wine form, which doesn't apply to infants here. The Word of God is uh, uh, written in His Word. It's read. And as, um, as our infants hear the Word of God, uh, now, so if you're, if, you're, uh, if you're on the more Baptistic spectrum of Protestant Christianity, this is going to sound weird to you. And if you have any questions, get a hold of me. But there's this notion in much of Christianity that faith is cognitive, that when the Bible talks about salvation by faith, it's talking about something that primarily happens between our ears. You know, faith means like I think, in, I think it, it's true in my head. Faith, though, is not primarily cognitive in Scripture. It's primarily experiential, and the Word of God can move us to faith, and that includes babies as well. And the the, the instant comeback from my um, my dear Baptist friends is, well, babies can't have faith, and I would say, you know, that's not true, though. Anybody who's had a child knows when they hold that child in their arms, that baby trusts them. You can test it out. You can hand that baby off to, uh, you know, Uncle Kenny, and that baby's going to start crying and wiggling around. And as soon as you go over there and take that baby back from Uncle Kenny, that baby calms down. That baby knows. Your child knows who you are even before they can articulate it, even even before they can cognitively um, uh, uh, assess that and process that in their brains. They know. That's what faith is. And if my infant child can believe and have faith in me, who's to say that they can't have faith in, in the person who's more real than me, their creator and their savior? And I, so you see this with John the Baptist in, in his mother's womb, not able to talk, you know, not able to do basic math. He's a, a in utero infant, and he is having faith. He hears the voice of the mother of his savior, and he leaps in the womb. And so baptism is entirely appropriate. Um, so what I'm saying is this: to circle back to your um, uh, to your first question, is that um, you know we read the Word of God to our kids. Um, I have a friend who uh, says he faithfully read the Bible to his pregnant wife's belly, knowing that you know babies, it's scientifically de- demonstrable that babies can hear inside the womb. And if the Word of God is powerful to save. You apply that word of God to the kid. Now, all that to say, who's to say that that kid was not a Christian upon hearing the word of God, you know, even in it, even in his or her mother's womb? So what I want to say is that I wouldn't set that in stone. I wouldn't say that like somebody before they're baptized, 
is not a Christian, and after they're baptized, they're, they are saved. Although I do want to, I do want to emphasize that there is something, because baptism is such a, a physical part of having God's word applied to us. There is something worthwhile in saying something's changed at baptism. There's been a transition there. Not too much talk about baptism as we envision it or experience it in the New Testament era. Not too much talk about that in the Old Testament. It's almost, I mean, you cited a couple of right, passages, yeah. but it's almost absent. Yeah. Um, and then along comes John the Baptist. Yeah. And he's baptizing people left and right. Is what John did the same thing that you do when you baptize uh, somebody here at St. James? Are they exactly the same thing? Yeah, well, so n- not exactly. Um but there's definitely some overlap. So, so first of all, baptism isn't mentioned in the uh, Old Testament because it was not the sign and seal of faith in the Old Testament. Circumcision was. Um, it was not the initiatory rite. It wasn't the covenant family sign. That, that was circumcision. Um, th- there's a lot of moving parts here. So uh, if, if, if there's strands left uh, untucked in, let me know as I'm going to here. John comes along and... John does something different. Um, John, I believe, and there's some good evidence for this, is using a rite that was used by Jews on Gentiles as a part of Gentile conversion. So Gentile wants to become a Jew. You know, this is in the days of Jesus. Uh, part One of the things that Gentiles would have to do uh, would, uh, there's many things they'd have to do, but one of the things they'd have to do is undergo a ritual baptism. They'd have to be uh, um, washed in water. So why is this? Well, um, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the big reasons is goes back to the story of Naaman the Syrian of all things in, in the in the Book of Kings. Naaman the Syrian uh, has leprosy, finds out that there's a prophet in Israel who can cure him, goes to the prophet of Israel and says, "Cure me." The prophet says, "Go dunk yourself in the Jordan River seven times." Naaman doesn't want to do it. One of his servants talks him into doing it. He goes and dunks himself in the Jordan River, and his leprosy is cleansed. But but that's not all. Something more profound happens to him. He actually converts to worshiping the one true God. He goes back to the prophet and says, can you give me a wheelbarrow full of dirt from your backyard? Because I want to take it home with me back to Syria, and I want to dump it in my backyard, and I want to know that there's a part of my new homeland there with me. And um, because of that, I believe that uh, synagogues would request Gentiles coming in to do a a Naaman-type experience, to go through the same experience. And so um, John the Baptist is pulling—one of the things John the Baptist is saying is, y'all Jews aren't really true children of Abraham. You're just like Gentiles, and if you want to be a part of this family, you're going to have to undergo the Gentile initiatory, right? All right, here's another strand. When Moses is leading the people out of Egypt, uh, both uh, Moses coming across the Red Sea, Joshua coming across the Jordan River, there's a parting that happens. Um, Moses uh, lifts his hands and the waters of the Red Sea are parted, and the people of Israel are, in the crossing of that Red Sea, transferred from slaves to Egypt to a free people ruled over by Yahweh, the Creator. 
that water comes back and crushes the armies who are trying to defeat them and drowns them. Similar thing happens when um, the people of Israel are crossing over into the promised land with Joshua. He lifts his hands and the waters spread so that the people can cross over on dry ground. One of the things that John the Baptist is saying when he baptized is, it's time for the new exodus. We're going to the Jordan River. We're coming up out of the Jordan River. The new exodus is here. And so there's a lot of great Old Testament themes that are weaving into that. And um, there's a lot more, too, that, that, that I haven't brought up, Old Testament uh, baptism themes. Now, when Jesus comes to be baptized by John the Baptist, he is doing so, um, A, as a confession that the new exodus is here, uh, B, as a connection with John the Baptist, who has been telling people that the one who comes after me is the one who's going to baptize you with the Spirit and with fire, and that he's, Jesus is saying, okay, I'm here. I'm linking up with you, John. Your baptism is my baptism. C, he's uniting himself with us. And this, when I baptize, so, so Jesus, um, sinless, unites himself he, he undergoes a sinner's baptism. This is what John the Baptist says to him. Hey, 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 buddy, this is not for you. This is for all the rest of us. Like, you don't need to be doing this. And, and Jesus says, let's fulfill righteousness. I'm, I'm going to do this. Baptize me. And, you know, one of the things that's going on is Jesus is, is binding himself to sinners and saying, them's my people. I'm with them. So, you know, um, one way I talk about it is like uh, you get into a bathtub and you take a bath and the water's dirty if somebody behind you comes in and climbs into that same uh, bathtub, no, it's kind of a gross picture, um, they're going to get the dirt from you on them. They're not going to get clean. Jesus climbs down into our bathwater at his baptism, and instead of our dirtiness getting him dirty, his cleanness purifies the water and purifies us. So that's another thing that's going on. And, and, and that last one is what I want to kind of, they're all important. But when I baptize somebody, it's not necessarily John the Baptism's baptism. It's John the Baptism's baptism of Jesus that we're connecting to. United to Christ in baptism is what Romans 6 says, what Galatians 3 says. A lot of texts say this. When I baptized somebody, when I was baptized, I was joined with Jesus in his baptism so that what's true of him is true of me. So Ephesians 2 says, in verse 1, and you, Ephesians, were dead mm -hmm. in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Uh, okay, dead. He's writing to people who aren't really dead, but I guess they're dead in some sense. Yeah. Uh, talk about what that means, that we're dead there, and then tell me if the person who was baptized is made alive from that dead condition. Right. Yeah, so dead, it means spiritually dead, certainly. Like we are incapable of loving and serving God or our neighbors without him. Um, we have no desire for God on our own. Uh, there's no, there's no sp even a spark of energy inside of us that wants to really to know God and to submit to him and to do what's right. Also, I mean, just... Literally, we're dead people walking. Like we're we're all dying right now. Uh, this is a part of our reality. Those two things are linked too, by the way, our spiritual death and our impending physical death. Baptism brings us back to life, 
because baptism unites us to life. When, when, when we're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are united to Jesus Christ so that what's true of him is now true of us. Jesus is the only truly alive thing in the universe. Um, we're all, like I said, we're all spiritually dead slash dying, heading towards physical death. Jesus is the only one who will never die. Now, by being baptized and united to him, and if we had more time, we would spend some good time unpacking Romans chapter 6. We're united to Jesus in such a way that when he was raised from the dead on that first Easter, we were raised up with him. We were buried with him by baptism into death so that when he rises from, so that when he died on the cross, we died with him. And when he rose from the dead, we rose with him too. And now those who have been united to Jesus, this is the main meaning of baptism for Paul in Romans 6, have been made spiritually alive and are now, they, we now have the fuel to want God, to want to love our neighbors, to not be slaves to sin anymore. So yeah, like spiritual life is inextricably linked to Christian baptism. So um, we refer to baptism as a sacrament. That's one of those highfalutin religious words yeah. that everybody used to know what it meant. Now, maybe less than half know what it means. Um, what is a sacrament and who qualifies to receive that sacrament? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of good uh, definitions of sacrament. An outward sign of an inward spiritual reality is St. Augustine's. I prefer to think of it in terms of though Saint Augustine was probably affected by Plato a touch, and, and I don't I don't think that his definition is wrong, but I like to think of it as a sacrament is um, it's, it's the word of God in a physical form. It's either the word of God in bread and wine form, or the word of God in liquid form in water. Um, a sacrament is. God's word applied to us physically. Um, when I hear a sermon, I can cognitively process it, you, you know, and it it goes into my ears and into my brain, and then uh, you know I think about the sermon and uh, I, I want to do better. It affects my will and my emotions and my thoughts. But a sacrament is a physical promise from God. In other words, a physical form of God's word that's super vital. And I, one one of the examples I use, I might have actually used this in a previous podcast episode. But um, if my daughter, if I say to my daughter, my youngest daughter Reeve, if I say to her, um, "I love you," but I don't ever hug her, she would be denied a part of what my love is. She would be denied an aspect of fatherly love. If I hugged her but never told her I loved her, she too would be denied a part of what fatherly love is. Uh, God created us as physical, spiritual nexi. We are bodies and souls inextricably linked. That's our destiny. Like God made us. God didn't invent us as two separate parts, and then the fact that we're living in a physical body now is some you know, unfortunate de- degradation of pure spiritual reality. No, God created us as physical beings with spirits, and when he saves us, he comes up with a way to get this salvation, to get his love, to get the power of his faith-creating word 
into us and on us in both spiritual ways and in physical ways, if I can divide those up in ways that the Bible never does. So this is cheesy, but God's word tells us that Jesus loves us. Baptism is like a hug from Jesus. I realize that's cheesy, but it's a physical, it it is God's physical love. Holy communion, which we're not talking about today, God's physical love. God physically comes to us uh, in Jesus, in the bread and wine, and gives himself to us. That's what I need. That's I, I don't need like I don't need more things to happen between my head. I don't just need my father in heaven to tell me he loves me. I need hugs from him. And that's I need physical manifestations of that love. And that's what sacraments do. Is it correct to say that the forgiveness of sins is in action when sacraments are being administered, baptism and holy communion? Yeah, for sure, definitely. But but it's much more than that. It's not so as um, you know, so I'm a Lutheran. Uh, you're a Lutheran, Chuck. Um, sometimes we as Lutherans, we strip forgiveness of sins down to mean this sort of legal, like, okay, our sins are paid for. It's 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 much more than that. It's d- deeper and broader than that. It's reconciliation. It's sanctification. It's regeneration. The sacraments sanctify. Um, it's salvation broadly is what God— if, do we receive the forgiveness of sins as we read God's word and are convinced of his gospel love for us? Yes. The same thing happens in baptism and in holy communion. It's Again, it's just God's word in physical form applied to us. And whatever the Bible does, the sacraments do the same thing. So I'm a little perplexed as to why, if baptism and holy communion are sacraments, and they are, we only get baptized once— but we come to the communion rail over and over and over and over again. seems like it ought to be once for both or over and over and over again for both. Why the difference? Yeah. Well, you're only born once, but you have to eat a lot of meals during your life. Right? So baptism is the new birth, the initiatory sacrament. It's, 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 you only need it once. You know, once you're a child of God, you're in. Once you are called by his name, you're in. But we need to eat lots of meals throughout the course of our life. And Holy Communion is what feeds us from day to day. So they're they're doing different things, right? They're both the word of God in physical form. But they function in slightly different ways. One is the initiatory covenant ceremony that uh, plugs us into Jesus, that that, um, makes us God's child in by being adopted and, and united into Jesus. But uh, Holy Communion is the feeding that we need every day, um, every week, every month, throughout our whole life. We need God's physical. So, so my wife gave birth to uh, my wife gave birth to my kids once, right? But we still hug them and we still feed them and we still clothe them. And that, that's basically the difference. Here's my last question. If someone who was baptized as a baby, joins a church that requires that person now to undergo rebaptism. The implication is that since you were baptized as a baby, that was not valid. Right. What do you think of that requirement? So that's, um, I would strongly encourage that person not to get rebaptized. And the main reason why is because it's a bad view of baptism. Baptism is not something that we do to demonstrate our faith or as a first step of obedience. The type of church you would ask somebody to get rebaptized is the type of church who thinks of baptism as a man work. 
something that humans do, you know, to, to, to demonstrate your faith to people or to first step of obedience. And, um, you know, in, in their rationale, that makes sense. Since a baby uh, can't, can't have faith, they believe, then you're going to need to do it again. Or even more strangely, I, growing up in a Baptist church, I knew of people who had gotten baptized as, you know, teenagers or adults who later became convinced that they hadn't been really converted, had a conversion experience, whatever that means, and then got rebaptized after that because baptism is the first step of obedience. And since I wasn't really saved before, I need to get rebaptized now. I just want, I would just want to emphasize to that person that you, baptism is not something that you do. It is something that God has done to you. And his promises are always sure. And, you know, if you were baptized as an infant and then you rejected Jesus and as an adult, you came back to faith, you had a dramatic conversion experience, let's say, I would still say that baptism was God's promise to you that's now finally getting paid out. You don't need to get baptized again. What God does, he does for all time. And to treat, you know, to get rebaptized is to say, well, God, you know, what you did that first time wasn't really good enough. Let's see if it takes this time. And so I would just say, you know, please don't do that. Trust in the promises of God. Aaron, thank you very much. That's our conversation on baptism today on our program. We say thank you to all of you who are listening to Craving Answers, Craving God with Aaron Miller, pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. We've been doing our podcast for nearly a year now, and I'd like to know what you think. When you select an episode, you'll find my name on the page. Click the name and let us know how we're doing. I'm Chuck Rathert. Thanks for listening.